Stage 51, item 31. The season's concluding broadcast. Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Adapted, directed, and produced by Andrew Allen. With original music composed and conducted by Lucio Agostini. Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I had just returned to London after a lot of Indian Ocean, Pacific, China Seas. First, I was glad to loaf about. But I got tired of that and began looking for a ship, the hardest work on Earth. The ships wouldn't look at me, so I got tired of that game, too. There was one place on the map of Africa I had always had a hankering to go to ever since I'd poured over maps as a little chap. A blank space of mystery, a place of darkness. There was in it one great river that you could see on the map like an immense snake uncoiled head in the sea, its body curving over a vast country, its tail lost in the depth of the land. I remember there was a big concern, a company for trade on that river. Company headquarters was in a European city where I had an aunt living. So I crossed the channel and in that continental city that always makes me think of a whited sepulcher, I saw my aunt. My dear Charlie, it's a delightful idea. I must say, Aunt Moore, this is the first time I've set a woman to get me a job. Nonsense, Charlie. You've always been far too independent. You seagoing men, get away from the sea and get into the, to Africa with the company. You may become a rich man after all. Glorious idea. What do you advise? Leave it to me. I know the wife of a very high personage in the administration. You'll hear from him. I was summoned to the company's offices. A narrow and deserted street in deep shadow... Immense double doors ponderously ajar. I went up a swept and ungarnished staircase as arid as a desert. And two women, one fat and the other slim, sat on straw-bottomed chairs knitting black wool. Even when they spoke, they continued knitting with downcast eyes. There's someone you wish to see, monsieur? I have an appointment. My name is Marlowe. Monsieur Marlowe, yes. You are expected. She passed me on to a compassionate, white-haired man, the secretary to the great man himself. Great man spoke to me, approved me, shook my hand. Compassionate secretary, full of desolation and sympathy, made me sign some document. You have, Captain Marlowe, you understand, undertaken not to disclose any trade secrets. Right. You are the servant of the company, the servant of an empire. No end of coin to be made, eh? There is a great responsibility to millions of souls, to an ideal. We believe you understand that very well, Captain Marlowe. Oh, yes, I suppose so. Quite. You have been well attested. They have great confidence in you. Well, that's nice. You will have an examination by our doctor. After that, there are few formalities beyond instructions for your departure and arrival, which I will send you. Thank you. Perhaps, Captain Marlowe, you will be fortunate enough out there to encounter Mr. Kurtz. Mr. Kurtz? Precisely. <laughs> I was evidently supposed to know what this meant. The secretary nodded sagely, but I was none the wiser. Outside in the antechamber, the two old knitters of black wool looked at me with a swift and indifferent placidity that troubled me. My nephew will be here in a moment, Captain Marlowe, to guide you to the office of the doctor. Your nephew is also a servant of the company, madame? Yes. A young, energetic man? Yes. I suppose someday he'll be going out there. 
Thy nephew, monsieur, is fond of the saying, I am not such a fool as I look. Good Plato to his disciples. Thank you, madame. Ave. Oratore, te salutant. As you wish, monsieur. The company's doctor examined me, evidently thinking of something else for a while. He was an old, unshaven little man in a threadbare coat, his feet in slippers. I asked him if he knew a man named Kurtz. Yes, he'd examined him. Must have been a long time ago, I suppose. He'd had a good physique and was said to be brilliant. My own examination was satisfactory, too. Good. Yes, good. Good for up there. I'll do, eh, Doctor? Would you let me measure your head? Measure my head? Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's not part of the examination. A sort of hobby of my own. Well, by all means, go ahead and measure my head if you want to. Ah, thank you. What are those? Uh, calipers? Yes, I, uh, I suppose you might call them calipers. <laughs> I always ask leave in the interests of science to measure the crania of those going out there. And when they come back, too? Oh, I never see them when they come back. Those that uh, come back. And moreover, the changes take place inside, you know. Yes, yeah, they do. <laughs> so you are going out there. Famous. Interesting, too. Ever any madness in your family? Is that question in the interests of science, too, Doctor? It would be interesting for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. Are you an alienist? Every doctor should be. A little. I have a little theory which you messieurs who go out there must help me to prove. Uh, this is my share in the advantages my country shall reap from the possession of such a magnificent dependency. The mere wealth I leave to others. I... Uh, hope you will pardon me, but you're the first Englishman coming under my office. I must warn you, I'm hardly a typical Englishman. If I were, I wouldn't be talking like this with you. What you say is rather profound and uh, probably erroneous. <laughs> well, those are the measurements. Avoid irritation more than exposure to the sun. Adieu, Monsieur Marlowe. Uh, how do you English say, eh? Goodbye? In the topics, one must, before everything, keep calm. Adieu. that this is the last decent cup of tea you will have for many a long day. I expect so, Arnold. You are leaving immediately? In a week. They received you well at the country. Yes, rather too well, I thought. Too well? I felt someone had been telling them lies about me. My dear Charlie, of course I spoke well of you to my friend. Good gracious, you don't expect to get an appointment without a certain amount of exaggeration, do you? Besides, I have a great deal of confidence in you. I suppose you told your friend I was an exceptional and gifted preacher. Piece of good fortune for the company. Man, you don't get hold of every day. The company is very sensitive these days, Charlie. There's been a lot of silly talk, criticism, about treatment of the natives and that kind of thing. Naturally, they're looking for new men of a certain... of a certain caliber. So I hinted you were a man of ideas. Man of business, true, and a master mariner. But also a... Oh, well, you know the kind of thing. You're an emissary of light. Something like a lower sort of apostle. Good heavens. I'm going to take charge of a Tupney-Eckney River steamboat with a penny whistle attached. Charlie, dear, there's a more to it than that. The time has come when we must wean those ignorant, savage millions from their horrid ways. Uh, may I venture to hint, Lord, that the company is run for profit? 
Oh, you forget, dear Charlie, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Oh. Don't make those unpleasant noises, Charlie. Have another cup of tea. Thank you, Emily. And it's clear how out of touch with truth women are. Don't be idiotic. All of you. Live in a world of your own. Never been anything like it and never can be. Too beautiful altogether. And if you were ever to set it up, it'd go to pieces before the first sunset. Some confounded fact we men have been living contentedly with ever since the day of creation would start up and knock the whole thing over. Your tea? Thank you. You must be sure to wear flannel and be sure to write me on. And before you go, I think you should see Marie Basilière. Who is Marie Basilière? She's the fiancée of a man you will probably meet out there in Africa. Extraordinarily gifted man, I understand. You should see her before you leave. I can get you an introduction. Uh, who is this gifted man? His name is uh, Kurtz. In the street, I don't know why, the feeling came to me that I was an imposter. Odd thing that I, who used to clear out for any part of the world at 24 hours' notice, with less thought than most men give to the crossing of the street, had a moment, I, I won't say of hesitation, but of startled pause before this commonplace affair. The best way I can explain it to you is by saying that for a second or two I felt as though instead of going to the center of a continent, I were about to set off for the center of the earth. I went to see Mademoiselle Basilier the day before I sailed. It was twilight. She received me alone in a lofty drawing room with three long windows from floor to ceiling that were like three luminous and bedraped columns. In age, this fiancée of the man Kurtz was perhaps not much more than a girl. But in her quiet pride, she was a woman, quite lovely, pale and fair. My engagement with him is not approved by my family. That is why you see me alone like this. I'm sorry to hear that, mademoiselle. There is no need to be sorry, Captain Marlowe. I am perfectly happy. I am happy to be alone with my thoughts of him and await his return. You will forgive my saying how inconceivable it seems to me that Mr. Kurtz should go all that long way from you and place himself under the necessity of staying away so long. Ah, but he has been very poor all his life. His mother was a widow without means. That is mainly why my family disapproved. He became impatient of his poverty, and that is what drove him out there. Captain Marlowe, you see, he has gone there because of me. And that is why I am content to wait. I know he will come back, and I know he will be triumphant. And his mother? She's dead now. She was the only friend I had. You... Have a capacity for fidelity, mademoiselle. It is a thing I can give him in exchange for all that he is. I left in a French steamer, and she called in every blamed port they have out there, for, as far as I could see, the sole purpose of landing soldiers and custom house officers. I watched the coast... The edge of a colossal jungle, so dark green as to be almost black, fringed with white surf, straight, like a ruled line, along a blue sea whose glitter was blurred by a creeping mist. The sun was fierce, the land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Once we came upon a man of war, anchored off the coast, 
There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. The greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down. In the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. There is a war, you understand, hidden out of sight in there is a camp of enemy natives. Nothing seems to happen. What can happen? A merry dance of death and trade it was like a weary pilgrimage amongst hints for nightmares. It was upward of 30 days before I saw the mouth of the big river. We anchored off the seat of government, and I had myself transferred to the other steamer. The captain was a Swede. His name was Larson. It is funny what some people will do for a few francs a month. I wonder what becomes of that kind when it goes up country. In fact, I'll know soon. I'm going up country. So? Well, they tell me. Don't be too sure. The other day I took up a man who hanged himself on the road. He was a sea, too. Hanged himself? Why, in God's name? Who knows? The sun too much for him? Or the country, perhaps? Farther on, a rocky cliff appeared. Mounds of turned-up earth by the shore. Houses hanging on a hill. A continuous noise of rapids over a scene of inhabited devastation. A lot of people, mostly black and naked, moving about like ants. A jetty projecting into the river, a blinding sunlight. There's your company station. I will send your things up. Four boxes. No. Farewell. I came upon a boiler wallowing in the grass. An undersized railway truck on its back, its wheels in the air. Decaying machinery. Stacks of rusty rails. A clinking pile of natives fastened together by chains toiling up the slope and baskets full of earth on their heads. Their bodies skinny, and their eyes the complete, death-like indifference of unhappy savages. I passed a loathsome pit into which other natives had dragged themselves to die. Then at the company buildings, I met a white man in a starched collar, light alpaca jacket, snowy trousers, necktie, and varnished boots. My name is Bertrand. I'm the company's chief accountant. All the bookkeeping is done at this station. I do. I'm Marla. I know. Come in. There's a sick man here in a litter. You must forgive me. There's nowhere else to put him. This is your office, Monsieur Bertrand? Yes, but the groans of this sick person have been distracting my attention. Who is he? One of our agents from upcountry. Will he die? Probably. God knows even without this distraction, it's difficult enough to guard against clerical errors in this climate. Hmm. When do I leave for upcountry, Monsieur Bertrand? I hope to organize a caravan to go to the central station in a few days. I say I hope to with these black beasts one never knows. And at the central station, there is the river steamer I'm to take over? If it is in any condition to take over, it has been wrecked. Oh, I see. Uh, Captain Marlowe, in the interior, you will no doubt meet Mr. Court. Court? Our first-class agent, Captain Marlowe. Oh? And furthermore, a very remarkable person. Where is he at the moment? In charge of a trading post, a very important one, in the true ivory country, at the very bottom of there. Sends in as much ivory as all the rest put together. Good for him. Uh, when you see Mr. Kurt, tell him from me that everything here is very satisfactory. I don't like to write to him, but these messengers of ours, you never know who may get hold of your letter at that uh, central station. I left with a caravan of 60 men for a 200-mile tramp over an empty land, through long grass, through burnt grass, through thickets, down and up chilly ravines, up and down stony hills ablaze with heat. 
and the solitude. A solitude, nobody, not a hut. Camp, cook, sleep, strike camp, march. Day after day, with the stamp and shuffle of 60 pair of bare feet behind me, each under a 60-pound load. Now and then a carrier, dead in harness, addressed in the long grass near the path with an empty water gourd and his long staff lying by his side. A great silence around and above. Perhaps on some quiet night, the tremor of far-off drums sinking, swelling, a tremor vast, faint, a sound weird, appealing, suggestive, and wild. On the 15th day, I came in sight of the big river again and hobbled into the central station. On a backwater, surrounded by scrub and forest. A border of smelly mud on one side, a crazy fence of rushes on the other three. Oh, Monsieur Marlowe, it is to be said that your steamer is at the bottom of the river. Oh? But it is all right. The manager himself is here. Well, that makes it nice. It is all quite correct. Everybody has behaved splendidly, splendidly. Good. You must go and see the general manager at once. He is waiting. have been very long on the road, Monsieur Marlowe. No longer than I could help, the Mr. Manager. The stations have to be relieved. There have been so many delays already that I don't know who's dead and who's alive. My dear Mr. Manager, you can hardly hold me accountable for that. I've done 20-odd miles this morning. Do you mind if I sit down? If you wish. The situation is grave. Very grave. There are rumors that a very important station's in jeopardy. That's Chief Mr. Court's very ill. Uh-huh. I hope it's not true. Court's I've heard of Mr. Court's on the coast. Ah. So they talk of him down there. Quite natural. Mr. Quartz is the best agent I have. An exceptional man of great importance to the company. You can understand my anxiety. I'm very, very uneasy. The steamer, Monsieur Marlowe. How long will it take you to... How long can I tell? I haven't even seen the wreck yet. Of course. Some months, no doubt. Some months? Three months, shall we say? Well... Three months before we can make a start. How is your health, Monsieur Marlowe? My health? Well enough? I owe my position out here to the fact that I am never ill. Three terms of three years each. Not an illness. Men who come out here, Monsieur Marlowe, should have no entrails. Oh, those months. The central station was a crawl with company agents, white men with long staves in their hands who appeared to do nothing but stroll about suspiciously. I began to think of them as a lot of faithless pilgrims bewitched inside a rotten fence. I went to work with the mechanics, such as they were, on the wretched hulk of that steamer. And every item of supply we needed seemed unobtainable. Nothing in the world was able to penetrate the indomitable stupidity of that undertaking. A stream of rubbishy cottons, beads, and brass wire was swallowed in the depth of darkness. And in return came a precious trickle of ivory. The word ivory was in the air, constantly, constantly. One night, a shed full of calico burst into flame. From where I smoked my pipe quietly by my dismantled steamer, I saw them all cutting capers in the light, their arms lifted high. In the outer darkness, the drums beat. Now, some of the pilgrims flogged a Negro nearby who was supposed to have caused the fire in some way. He screeched most horribly. 
Presently, Dupre strolled up to me, one of the leading agents. His little forked beard and his gentlemanly reserve were reflected in the glare like a papier-mâché Mephistopheles. Enjoying the scene? Watching it, Dupre. Get to walk over to my room for a chat. Well, thank you, yes. If we stroll over this way, we can avoid the little inferno. Don't you ever regret having left the comforts of Europe, Marlowe? I never find regrets of much value. Besides, I haven't had many of those comforts. I've been at sea most of my life. Ah. But you have many powerful friends in... at the... you know where, eh, Marlowe? I shouldn't have put it that way, Dupre. Naturally. Naturally. Hey, tell me, Dupre, you're supposed to be in charge of the making of bricks here. So far as I can see, there isn't a fragment of bricks anywhere in the station. I am waiting for supplies. Oh, Meantime, you too. I do secretarial work for the manager. Why? No sensible man rejects wantonly the confidence of his superiors. Oh. Rivets is what I want. Rivets. Down at the coast station, you kick a loose rivet at every second step. You can fill your pockets with rivets for the trouble of stooping down. There isn't one rivet to be found where it's wanted. These are among the things that are going to be changed, eh, Marla? God knows, I don't. Ah. <laughs> discretion, discretion. This is the door. I will light a candle. Discretion, eh? Isn't that too much of that commodity? Everyone here spends his time in an air of intrigue. No real work is there. You are stuck with the painting? It was painted by Mr. Kutz. The effect of the torchlight on the face of the woman. Sinister? Yes, it is sinister. A painting of darkness. Did you paint? Tell me, who is this Mr. Kutz? What do you know about him? He is the chief of the inner station. Much obliged. You're the brickmaker of the central station. Everyone knows that. He is a prodigy. He is an emissary of pity and science and progress. And devil knows what else. We want for the guidance of the cause entrusted to us by Europe, so to speak, higher intelligence, wide sympathies, a singleness of purpose. Who says that? Lots of them. Some even write that. And so he comes here, a special being, as you ought to know. Why ought I to know? Today he is chief of the best station. Next year he will be assistant manager. Two years more and... But I dare say you know what he will be in two years' time. You are of the new gang. The gang of virtue. The same people who sent him specially also recommended you. Oh, don't uh, say no. I have my own eyes. Dupre, let me say something. I hate and detest a lie. Not because I'm straighter than the rest of us, but because to me there is a... Taint of death, a flavor of mortality in lives, is what I want to forget. Makes me miserable and sick, like fighting into something rotten. That's why I'm not going to act out a lie by keeping quiet and letting you believe this absurd fancy of yours about me. That's why I want you to, to believe... My dear Marlowe, there is no need. I shall respect your discretion, say no more. Only you will see courts long before I can have that pleasure... And I wouldn't like him to get a false idea of my disposition, so if you will put in a good word. Kurtz is a universal genius, 
But even a genius will find it easier to work with adequate tools. Intelligent men. There is the necessity for every man to get on. One does not come out here to gaze at the moon. I've had to strike and fend off, resist and attack according to the demand of whatever sort of life I've blundered into. I've seen the devil of violence and the devil of greed and the devil of hot desire. But by all the stars, those were strong, lusty, red-eyed devils that swayed and drove men. And here in this place, I became acquainted with a flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of rapacious and pitiless folly. And I stood appalled. Later, I got the rivets, and by hurling myself at the work, had the steamer almost ready. And one night, I overheard a conversation. Am I the manager, or am I not? I was ordered to send him out there. It's incredible. It is unpleasant. He asked the administration to be sent there with the idea of showing what he could do, and I was instructed accordingly. Look at the influence that man must have. The climate may do away with this difficulty for you. He is alone there. Yes. Ever since a year ago, when he sent his assistant down to me with orders to clear the fellow out of the country and send him no more of the sort. I had rather be alone than have the kind of men you can tell. Those were his very words. And nothing since then except the ivory. Lots of it. Prime sort. Lots of ivory. Ah, why doesn't he ever bring it himself? Started to once, bringing it in a fleet of canoes. Then before he got here, he turned back alone and sent the cargo on here with his half-caste clerk in charge. What about the rumor that he's ill, seriously ill? Probably true. He's been ill several times, but had given himself a chance to recover. And it's 200 miles from where he is to the nearest military post with a doctor. Anybody with him now? Only some pestilential wandering trader. Don't know who he is. One of those scoundrels who snap up ivory from the natives. We won't be free from unfair competition until I get one of those fellows hanged as an example. Hang him? Why not? Anything can be done in this country. At least my health remains. But the rest? Oh, my goodness. All sick. They die so quickly, too. No need to worry, really. Just be patient and trust to the jungle. The jungle does for so many. It will do for Kurtz. We finally set out on that journey into the interior, the manager, the three or four pilgrims, and I. The stern paddle banged along when I could keep enough waste battened against the steam pipes to maintain a head of steam. I had a native helmsman who wasn't much good and a native fireman whose knowledge of the white man's magic consisted in knowing that if the water in that transparent thing disappeared, the evil spirit inside the boiler would get angry and take terrible vengeance. We tied ourselves to the matted jungle at night for fear of the unmarked reefs. Going up that river was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world when vegetation rioted on the earth. The big trees were kings. The air was warm, thick, heavy, sluggish. On silvery sandbanks, hippos and alligators sunned themselves. Here was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. Looked at you with a vengeful aspect. I sweated and shivered over that business. 
For a seaman, to scrape the bottom of the thing that's supposed to float all the time under his care is the unpardonable sin. More than once, that old steamer had to be pushed off a shoal with 20 cannibals of her crew splashing around. Fine fellows, cannibals, in their place. For us, they were foregoing their familiar diet, and the hippo meat they had brought along as substitute was thrown overboard by the pilgrims when the stench got too much to live with. The cannibals never complained. And the little begrimed steamboat crawled along like a sluggish beetle. We penetrated deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness. At night sometimes, the roll of drums behind the curtain of trees would run up the river and remain sustained as if hovering in the air high over our heads from the first break of day. Whether it meant war, peace, or prayer, we could not tell. We were wanderers on prehistoric earth. We were traveling in the night of first ages, of those ages that are gone, leaving hardly a sign and no memory. We were a few miles below the inner station when it happened. A white fog, which was the mist of dawn, warm and clammy, began to lift as if in greased grooves before the round ball of the sun, when suddenly... What's that? Good God, what's Quiet. the beat? This close to the bank, we'll be butchered. Bad fellow, him come. Quiet, Bad boy. Him. What should we do? Get underway, away from the We're shore. We're going to be attacked. We must arm ourselves. Bad fellow, him come. Marlow, you're in command. Do something. Bad fellow, him You kill. keep the boy quiet and I'll do something. And let's have no shooting unless it's necessary. What idiot fired that shot? We'll be butchered if we don't. Don't you fall. This is serious. Keep your head down. Keep down. The air is full of arrows. They may be poisoned. That battle, if you can call it a battle, lasted only perhaps a few minutes until I could get the steamboat underway and clear of the bank. But it cost me my native helmsman. He looked at me with surprised eyes and was dead. I had to haul him overboard because I didn't like to look about the faces of my cannibal crew. It was only then that I had the sense to go sound the wretched steam whistle. sunset when we reached the inner station. Through my glasses, I saw the slope of a hill, a long, decaying building in high grass. In front of it was a row of posts, their upper ends ornamented with what at first I took to be round, curved balls. They weren't that at all. I realized with a shock that they were human heads. At first, the only living thing was a white man near the shore, a curious object, his clothes all of patches, blue, red, and yellow, Veritable Harlequin. It was to this Harlequin I first spoke when I got ashore. How did you get here? I had been wandering about the river for two years, alone. Cut off from everything and everybody. You know the company has it in for vagabond traders like you, don't you? <laughs> what matter? Tell me, why did the natives attack us? They don't want him to go. Courts? Yes, but never mind. You take courts away quick. Quick, I tell you. What will you do? I'll disappear. <laughs> You'll see. They won't catch me. Very well. Perhaps you'd better. Oh, but he has enlarged my mind. This man has enlarged my mind. I dare say. I'll never meet such a man again. You ought to have heard him recite poetry. His own poetry. Poetry? That first night in the forest when I met him, we talked of everything. Oh, he talked. 
I forgot there was such a thing as sleep. The night did not seem to last an hour. Everything. Everything. Of love, too. Ah, he talked to you of love. It isn't what you think. It was, in general. He made me see things. Things. And you've been with him ever since? Not constantly. There have been breaks, many of them. Oh, I have nursed him through two illnesses, though. Then so often he wandered alone, far in the depths of the forest. I would come to this station and I would have to wait days and days before he would turn up. What was he doing? Exploring or what? Oh, yes. He has discovered lots of villages. A lake, too. Where? Which direction? I don't know. It's dangerous to inquire too much. But most of his expeditions have been for ivory. But he's been cut off from the central station for a year. Had no goods to trade with. <laughs> There's a good lot of cartridges left even yet. <laughs> to speak plainly, he raided the country. Uh, yes. Not uh... alone, surely. Well, he... Ah, so Kurtz got the tribe to follow him. Hey, adored him. What can you expect? He came to them with thunder and lightning. They had never seen anything like it. Very terrible. He could be very terrible. You can't judge Mr. Kurtz as you would an ordinary man. Why? The other day he wanted to shoot me. But I don't judge him. No. Shoot you? What for? Well, I had a small lot of ivory the chief of one village gave me. Because I shot game for him. Mr. Kurtz wanted the ivory and wouldn't hear reason. He said he would shoot me unless I gave him the ivory and cleared out of the country. He said he had a fancy for it and there was nothing on earth to prevent him killing me jolly well pleased. It was true, too. I gave him the ivory, but I didn't clear out. I couldn't leave him. He's mad. No, no. He was becoming very ill. He's very ill now. If you'd ever heard him talk, you wouldn't dare hint at such a thing. No, no. You you must take him away before the forest kills him. Me? I don't matter. Who are the natives who attacked us? The fighting men of the lake tribe. Mr. Kurtz brought them. Oh, he, he is sick. Very sick now. But even yet, the chiefs come every day to see him. They crawl to him. They crawl to him. Look, I don't want to hear any more about the quaint customs of Mr. Kurtz. I don't want to hear about those human heads either, stuck up on poles in front of his house. I've heard all I want to hear about Mr. Kurtz and all his works. But those heads are only symbols. Quiet, that's enough. Quite enough. They're bringing him. You'll see him. Now I'm going. I'd better... This is Kurtz they're bringing? Yes, the tribe. And if he does not say the right thing to them, we're all done for. But I'm off anyway. Goodbye, Mr. Uh, Hello. And let us hope those friends of yours on the steamboat don't decide to start shooting again. Goodbye. Fortunately, the pilgrims didn't start shooting, and fortunately, Mr. Kurtz did say the right thing to the tribes, whatever the right thing was. They left him with us in a little hut near the shore while they themselves melted into the bush. The drums continued, though. They were nearby. 
Kurtz was an apparition. A once huge and powerful man. His body now lay on the cot emaciated as if for a winding sheet. He opened his mouth as if he wanted to swallow all the air, all the earth, all the men before him. And he fell back with a groan. Mr. Kurtz, we have come to save you. Save me. Save the ivory, you mean. Don't tell me. Save me. We have had delays. Uh, I've had to save you. You're interrupting my plans now. You are sick. Sick? Sick? Not so sick as you would like to believe. Never mind. I'll carry my ideas out yet. I will return. I'll show you what can be done. You with your little paddling notion. You're interfering. Mr. Kurtz is low, very low. But there's no disguising the fact he has done more harm than good to the company. He did not see the time was not right for vigorous action. The district is closed to us for a time. On the whole, the trade will suffer. I don't deny there is a remarkable quantity of ivory, mostly fossil. We must save it at all events. But look how precarious the position is. And why? Because the method is unsound. You call it unsound method? Without doubt. Don't you? No method at all. Exactly. I anticipated this. Shows a complete want of judgment. It is my duty to point it out in the proper quarter. Oh, your precious brickmaker, Dupre, will make a readable report for you. What? Oh. Nevertheless, I think Mr. Kurtz is a remarkable man. He was. about you. I'm glad you've come. We're going to take you away, Mr. Kurtz. Your life depends on it. You feel you're in a dream, don't you, Marlow? You have that notion of being captured by the incredible, very essence of dreams. You'll try to remember it later. Try to tell it. Impossible. We live as we dream. Alone. Drums again. Yes. Marlow, however unlikely it may seem to you and that that noxious fool out there, I'm leaving this hut tonight, even if it is for the last time. Have a rendezvous to keep in that forest. If you do, you're as good as dead. If I do not, I might as well never have lived. Later, I confess, I fell asleep. When I woke up shortly after midnight, Kurtz was gone. The drums were louder now, and there was chanting, the beginnings of a frenzy of sound, weird and terrifying incantations. The hill was alive with flame. I went out after him alone. I saw a trail, a broad trail through the grass. I remember the exultation with which I said to myself, he can't walk, he's crawling on all fours, I've got him. Two women knitting black wool obtruded themselves upon my memory as most improper persons to be at the other end of such an affair. Fiends with antelope horns dancing in the flames. 
the madness of possession, unspeakable things. And suddenly there was Kurtz ahead of me, like a vapor exhaled by the earth, swaying slightly. Uh, you, oh, I, I you know what you're doing? Perfectly. I've been lost, utterly lost. I had immense plans. Yes, but if you try to shout, I'll throttle you for good. I was in the threshold of great things. Now for this stupid scoundrel. Your success in Europe is assured in any case. Europe? Ah! Europe is for children, old women. Here we recover the memory of monstrous passions. Oh, I know what you think. Brutal gratifications, you think? Beyond the bounds of permitted aspirations? It's not so simple, my friend. Here one invokes everything. One's forgotten self. Boy, it's not for you, any of you. Go away and hide. It's not Kurtz. You are coming back with me. I have only to raise my voice and you're dead, you fool. I know that. Here there is nothing above or below me. I have kicked myself loose of the earth. I am alone. You, you don't know whether you're standing on the ground or floating in the air. Nevertheless, if I have to wrestle for your soul, I will. What do you know of my soul? It is beyond you, the reach of any of you. Why don't you go? This is my space. You have no business here. You're sick. You're mad. Don't be childish. My intelligence is perfectly clear. You are concentrated on yourself with horrible intensity. Your soul is mad. Very well. But if you stay with me, you're going to look into hell yourself. Get away while you can. What am I to you? Mr. Kurtz! Can you bear the inconceivable mystery of a soul without restraint, without faith, without fear? In a blind struggle that began in savage swamps before the world was born? Can you... Kurtz! Mr. Kurtz! got Kurtz back to the steamboat, but how, I can never remember. Also, how I kept those infernal pilgrims from firing into the shore after we cast off, I can never tell. I realized we had to leave that place quickly if ever we were to leave it at all. Tell me. Tell me what you see. I can't think. The hill is covered with them. Writhing, naked bodies. There are three men with antlers on their heads. Their bodies caked in some red substance. And down by the water, it seemed to be flailing it with something and, and they're shaking something at us. It looks it looks like a dried gourd. This is a dried gourd. They're shouting something. I can hear them. Sounds satanic. It is. There's a woman. Ah. She's come to the very brink of the river. Raising her hands and...
bay and the pilot house. And the reaches of the river slid past as the brown current ran swiftly out of the heart of darkness, bearing us down towards the sea. Close and shutter. Can't bear to look at it. The jungle? Jungle. Oh, but I will wring your heart yet. at him as you peer down at a man who is lying at the bottom of a precipice where the sun never shines. Night came on. That you, Mauro? Yes. I brought a candle. I'm lying here in the dark, waiting for death. Oh, nonsense. I want nothing. Nothing. Only justice. Only justice. I had a brain, Marlowe. Brain. Now it's a weary waste, haunted by shadows. Images of it was as though a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, the ruthless power of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried out at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice. The horror. The horror. Boy. Boy, come here. Yes, sir. I'm coming, sir. Boy, I need your help. Something has happened to you. Mr. Kurt. He's dead. Fever struck me and I nearly died myself. 
In the end, at last, I was back in Europe in that whited sepulcher of a city. There are, Mr. Marlowe, certain documents which the company believes you to have in your possession. Oh, the company believes that, does it? Our manager out there and also Mr. Dupre have submitted a report. Oh, yes, your precious pair. They thought they had a right to certain documents, too. Well, we didn't get them. The company, through me, is now making official application for these documents. If you will be good enough... I will not be good enough. The documents aren't yours. They were entrusted to me by the late Mr. Kurtz, and I have his instructions. The company has the right to every bit of information about its territories, Mr. Marlowe. I'm no longer in the employ of the company. Nevertheless, you will understand that the late Mr. Kurtz's knowledge of unexplored regions, coupled with his great abilities and the circumstances in which he had been placed... My dear sir, I have here Mr. Kurtz's report on the suppression of savage customs. You may have that if you wish. That's all you get. He wrote it when he first went out there, and although there was a postscript which he wrote shortly before his death, I've destroyed it... Since it would only have shocked you. Now, good day. This is not what we had a right to expect. No one has a right to expect anything. Good day. I went to see the lady, the intended wife of the man who was dead. Once again, the dusk was falling. Once again, I had to wait in the lofty drawing room. The tall marble fireplace had a cold and monumental whiteness... The grand piano, standing massively in the corner, dark gleams on the flat surface like a somber and polished sarcophagus. A high door opened, closed. I rose. She came forward, all in black, her pale head floating toward me in the dusk. She seemed as though she would remember and mourn forever. I had heard you were coming. Mademoiselle. You see... I have survived. I've brought you this packet, his papers, as he wished. You knew him well. Intimacy grows quickly out there. I knew him as well as it is possible for one man to know another. And you admired him. It was impossible to know him and not to admire him. Was it? He was a remarkable man. It was impossible not to... Love him? Oh, true. When you think that no one knew him so well as I. I had all his noble confidence. I knew him best. You did know him best. You were his friend. His friend. You must have been if he had given you this and sent you to me. I feel I can speak to you. And... Oh, I must speak. I want you. You who have heard his last words to know that I have been worthy of him. It is not pride. Yes, I am proud to know I understood him better than anyone on earth. He told me so himself. And since his mother died, I've had no one, no one to, to, darkness deepened, and the girl talked, easing her pain in the certitude of my sympathy. She talked as thirsty men drink. The sound of her voice seemed to have the accompaniment of all the other sounds 
full of mystery, desolation, and sorrow, I had ever heard the ripple of the river, the soughing of the trees swayed by the wind, the murmurs of the crowds, the faint ring of incomprehensible words cried from afar, the whisper of a voice speaking from beyond the threshold of an eternal darkness. He drew men towards him by what was best in them. It is the gift of the great. But you have heard him, you know. Yes, I know. What a loss to me. To us. To the world. Yes. I've been very happy, very fortunate, very proud. Too fortunate. Too happy for a little while. And now I am unhappy for... For life. And of all this, of all his promise, and of all his greatness, of his generous mind, of his noble heart, nothing remains, nothing but a memory. You and I... We shall always remember him. No, it is impossible that all this should be lost. That such a life should be sacrificed to leave nothing but sorrow. Mademoiselle. You know what that Clancy said. I knew of him, too. I could not perhaps understand, but others know of him. Something must remain. His words at least have not died. His words will remain. And his example. Men looked up to him. His goodness shone in every act. His example... Uh, true, his example too, yes. His example, I forgot that. But I do not. I cannot... I cannot believe. Not yet, I I cannot believe that I shall never see him again. That nobody will ever see him again. Never, never, never. He died as he lived. His end was in every way worthy of his life. And I was not with him. Everything that could be done. Oh, but I believed in him more than anyone on earth, more than his own mother, more than himself. He needed me. Every sigh, every word, every sign, every glance. Don't. Forgive me, Captain Marlowe. I, I have mourned so long in silence. I know. You were with him to the last? Yes. I think of his loneliness. Nobody near to understand him as I would have understood. Perhaps no one could see To the very end. I heard his very last words... Repeat them. I want... I want something. Something to... To live with. I was on the point of crying at her. Don't you hear them? The dusk was repeating them in a persistent whisper all around us. A whisper that seemed to swell menacingly like the first whisper of a rising wind. The horror... The horror. Captain Marlowe, please, his last word, to live with. Don't you understand? I loved him, I loved him, I loved him. The last word he pronounced was... Your name. 
Deutz had said he wanted only justice. But I couldn't. I could not tell her. It would have been too dark. Too dark altogether. Oh. 